If you have your Bible, turn in those to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. I just want to say good morning and thank you for being here today. Also, thank you to all those tuning in online. Well, today we're reading from John chapter 16. We'll read from verses 1 through 4. That is the passage which I'm going to discuss today. But really, John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, that is really a a continuation of last week's passage, which is John chapter 15, verses 18 through 27. So for our scripture reading, what I'm going to do today, I have a handy-dandy little TV up here and an iPad. Um, What I'm actually going to do is I'm going to back up to chapter 15, verse 18, just to kind of give us some context, since it is so closely Related to chapter 16. If the world hates you, he's speaking to his disciples in the upper room. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of this world so that it may hate you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would have listened to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what is written in their scriptures. They hated me without cause. But don't worry. Why? Because I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth, and he will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. Now, I'm going to read, this is our passage today, but I want you to read this through, not through your eyes in America in the 21st century, but read it through the disciples' eyes in the first century. And this is the New American Standard, which I will study today. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that it is offering a service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Today I titled my sermon, sermon Knowing What to Expect. Because knowing what to expect makes all the difference in the world. Jesus, in John chapter 16, tells his disciples what to expect after he departs. And his forewarning of the persecution to come is intended to keep them from stumbling. Pause. Now, how many of you are in the process of buying Christmas gifts? Okay, I'm just online, right? We don't go to the, does anybody go to the mall anymore? That's why it's closing, okay? But some of us do. We went to Bridge Street last night, and it was a little bit crazy, okay? But we, for the most part, we buy our Christmas presents online. And by the way, buy those, because shipping is being delayed. But when you buy something online, when you buy a Christmas present online, kind of what's the process you take? What do you do if you're going to buy something online? You look at reviews, right? So that you try to figure out what to expect of the product when it actually arrives at your door. Now, how many of you have ever ordered a product online and thought you knew exactly what to expect, and then when it shows up, it is something different than what you thought? Okay, we all experience. What's that feeling like? 
You know, it's like every Christmas, when Amazon shows up at my front doorstep, it's like Christmas morning. Amen. Anybody else get that feeling? Okay, well, it's really probably just a book that my wife probably despises. Okay, <laughs> so I'm excited about that book. Okay, so, but when I open up that box, and then it's something that I thought was going to be a certain way, and it was another, I get kind of disappointed. You get disillusioned. You kind of get frustrated. And what does it kind of do? It causes you not to trust the company that sent it to you. Knowing what to expect makes all the difference in the world. It's the same with the Lord. As Christians, if what should we expect in life? If we expect as a Christian that life is going to be roses and sun, sunshine, and then when life doesn't pan out, what does it do to you? It causes you to stumble. But more specifically, in this passage, what should we expect, not just from God, but mainly from the world, that as Christians... What should we expect from the world around us? Well, if you're here last week, John chapter 15, verse 18 through 27, you should expect to be persecuted. John chapter 15, verse 20 says this, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That we even today, we should expect opposition, conflict, being misunderstood, looked down upon. We should expect that for our faith. Why? Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are different than the world. That you were like in the world, but that you are not like of the world. That you are called out. That you are born again. That you are transformed. That no wonder the world should look at you that you're a little bit strange. Because we are no longer of the world, but we live in the world. We should be misunderstood. We should be looked at by our co-workers, by our family members, by our unbelieving friends. We should be looked at as a little bit loony. At times, we should even be persecuted for our faith. But the question is, why does Jesus tell them that in John chapter 15 and John chapter 16, why does he tell them that they will be persecuted? Because knowing what to expect makes all the difference in the world. Being warned of the persecution to come allows them not to question God when it actually occurs. The question I have today is this, that when we receive persecution, what should we do? When we are misunderstood, when we are misrepresentative, when we are looked down upon, when we are passed over for a promotion, what should we do as Christians? So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 16. That's where we'll be today. John chapter 16. And we will look at verses 1 through 4 specifically. And as I've said already, uh, verses 1 through 4 is really a continuation of the end of John chapter 15. And to this point in the upper room, we're going to talk about the context more here in just a second, but if you think about the upper room discourse, which is John chapter 13 through kind of 17, we won't argue about semantics there, um, to this point, it's pretty positive. You know, I'm going to pray a place for you, I love you, and then there's this, there's this uh, divide of love in the beginning, and then all of a sudden at the end of 15, the tide turns, the plot twists. And all of a sudden he goes from love and then that they will be hated by the world. John chapter 16 is in the middle of the upper room discourse, but in a twist of irony, it's, Jesus does not give John chapter 16 in the actual upper room. Because at the end of John chapter 14, Jesus says, let us get up and go from here. When we go to John chapter 15, Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem on the way up to the Mount of Olives. And I just imagine as he's walking through the streets of Jerusalem, Jesus spots a grapevine. 
And he comes to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. He tells them, I am the vine and you are the branches. And that every true believer, every true follower, every true disciple of Jesus Christ must what? Must bear fruit. What, what, what is the fruit that we are to produce as Christians? What is the one thing that it really boils down to? Let's not overcomplicate things. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That every true disciple of Jesus Christ should bear the fruit of love. How do we do that? By abiding in Christ and Him abiding in us. John chapter 15 verses 1 through 11. And then you see in John chapter 15 verses 12 through 17, you see our relationship with one another, that a true believer in the beginning of 15 must bear fruit. And then John chapter 15 verses 12 through 17, a true believer must love one another. So then becoming what? Becoming a philoi, a friend of God, a true believer bears fruit, a true believer loves one another, and a true believer will experience persecution. It will experience conflict with the world. A true believer, in a sense, has a target on their back. Let me just say something real quick. If you came to hear like a really peachy and rosy sermon today, I'm sorry. This is not what the passage is. If you really preach expository, you kind of just have to take the tone of the passage. If you want a peachy and roses sermon, just come back when I go back in Romans chapter 8. Okay, that would be a great time to visit. But in John chapter 16, he just tells them the truth. That as believers, as disciples, they will be persecuted. And as we saw last week at the end of John chapter 15, that a true believer has, in a sense, a target on their back. Verse 20 says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As we said last week, a true believer's relationship with the world is antithetical. Now, if you don't, as I said last week, if you don't know what that word means, don't feel confused. I didn't either at the time. It's just a word popped into my mind. The word antithetical means this. It means directly opposed or contrasted, mutually incompatible. Why is our relationship with the world antithetical, mutually incompatible? Because the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, that you are called out of darkness into the light. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born again. Can that ever get old? That... When you trust in Christ as your Savior, you are no longer of the Father of this world, but you are a child of the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. James chapter 1. But if you are persecuted, if you are misunderstood, if you are mistreated by your family, by a friend, by a co-worker, if you are persecuted, what does it say at the end of John chapter 15? He says, don't stress. Because why? The spirit of truth is coming as our paraclete, as our helper, as our literally come alongsider. He helps us remember the truth. He helps us give bold testimony of the truth. So that is where we kind of pick up in John chapter 16, verse 1. So he just kind of dropped bad news on them in John chapter 15. And then he gives them uh, even worse news. I mean, if you're a disciple in the first century sitting there in the streets of Jerusalem on the way to the Mount of Olives... You don't want to hear what he has to say in chapter 16. Notice what he says. Verse 1 is pretty chill. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. He says, Jesus says that I warned you of persecution in chapter 15. Why? So that you would not stumble. Knowing what to expect makes all the difference in the world. Jesus tells them in chapter 15 to expect persecution for their faith so that they will not stumble and walk away from the faith. The word stumble there in chapter 16, verse 1, is used 30 times in the New Testament. Is the Greek word skandalizo. Okay, I got that one right. Skandalizo. It means to offend or to put off or to 
to literally bait a trap or to be caught in a trap. The word stumble in John chapter 16 verse 1 is used in Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 to describe that if your eye causes you to stumble, if you know this, pluck it out, right? Now pause real quick on that verse, Matthew chapter 5 verse 29. This is not an exposition of that passage. But truth be told, people throughout the history of the church have literally plucked out their eye because of that one verse. If you're thinking about plucking out your eye because of that one verse, just come talk to me first, please. Okay, don't do that. If you show up to church with the eye missing, I know what happened next week. Okay. But the word stumble is used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. It's also used in John chapter 6, verse 61. It talks about, it describes the people of Capernaum being put off by Jesus. Jesus warns them of persecution in chapter 15, verse 18 through 27, so that they will not stumble. Why does Jesus warn them? Because knowing what to expect allows us to make sense of the future. But what I really want you to do, as I did in the scripture, I really want you to look at this passage through the eyes of the disciples. We, uh, we can't help ourselves. We read the Bible like 21st century, probably middle class Americans. We just kind of have that mentality when we read the scripture. But the Bible wasn't written directly to me in the 21st century. It was written to an audience in the first century. I want you to, when you read John chapter 16, I want you to see it through the eyes of the disciples and ask the question, why would persecution cause them, the disciples, to stumble? What are they expecting before Jesus drops the bomb on them in John chapter 15? We don't see this aspect of the upper room, but in Luke chapter 22, what are the, what are the disciples arguing about? <laughs> in, the, in the actual upper room, the last night before Jesus' death, they are arguing over what? Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? What are they expecting? They're not expecting persecution. They're expecting Jesus to ride into Pontius Pilate's palace and kick out all of the Romans and usher in a new era of Maccabean independence and freedom. And if Jesus is king, what does that make them? Princes, powerful, secretary of the treasury, secretary of state, secretary of defense, right? Then in the upper room, in John chapter 16, verse 1, they're not expecting persecution. They're expecting to rule, to be powerful in Jesus' earthly kingdom. They don't expect to be ostracized, to be kicked out of the synagogues. They expect exaltation. They don't expect to be outcasts. But they expect, it to be, they expect to be welcomed in as conquering heroes. They don't expect persecution. They expect power. They don't expect opposition. They expect elevation. So imagine, to, imagine with me. They're, so they're thinking that they're going to be powerful in the kingdom of God on earth. And they're going to rule over the Romans. And they're going to be so prominent in the kingdom of Israel. And so, wait a second. Just with that mentality... Look what Jesus says to them. It's shocking, to be honest with you. I, I literally read John chapter 16, verse 2, and this week my jaw hit the floor and my eyes got really, really big. Look what it says from their perspective. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. And they, your own countrymen, will make you outcasts from the synagogue. What? But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering a service to God. Why does Jesus tell them this in verse 2? It is so that they would keep them from stumbling. Knowing what to expect of the future makes all the difference in the world. 
Jesus was honest with them, so let me be honest with you. At some point in your life, it could have happened already. You could have already experienced this. There's going to be two things I'm going to share with you. At some point in your life, you will suffer, okay? Can, every, can all the Christians in the room say amen to that one? If you think that the Christian life is easy and it's all about roses and sunshine, it's all about being wonderful and putting on a great shell for everyone to see, um, then you're in for a rude awakening, okay? Because <laughs> one day you will suffer. But more specifically, if you think that you will not be persecuted for your faith, then you're in for another rude awakening, At some point in your life, if you have not already, you will experience conflict with a family member. You will experience conflict with a coworker. You will experience conflict from a friend over what you believe. Now, you don't have to raise your hand on this. How many of you have ever experienced mocking or being misunderstood or experienced persecution for your faith? We all experience that. Let's just be honest. Let's just expect it and adjust to it when it comes. When we expect persecution, what should we do? Before we answer that question, I want to unpack verse 2 a little bit more. There's really two things that they should expect from the world that happens in the midst of persecution. Verse 2 again. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Man, we don't get that. I'm going to talk about that. We don't get the importance of that phrase. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think they are offering a service to God. This verse is the most uh, shocking verse in all of the upper room discourse. It really is. Because what did Jesus just say to them? That the Jews, their own countrymen, their friends, their family, will make them outcasts from the synagogue. They will be excommunicated, if you have your notes. They will be excommunicated from the synagogue. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and his own countrymen will kick them out. Now, the question is this, what is the synagogue? You know, we have, um, if the synagogue is just a church, well then, those of us that aren't super attached to the church don't think it's that big of a deal, but the synagogue, okay, I'm saying, being a Jew means belonging to a synagogue. That the very core of their identity is really belonging to a synagogue. Just listen to this quote. I, if you don't have this book, by the way, get it. It's called The Words and Works of Jesus Christ by Dwight Pentecost. And if, I, if, I'm just saying, if Chuck Swindoll can read a book in his sermon, so can I. Okay, so um, I'm going to read just a small excerpt to explain to you what a synagogue actually is to a Jew. They will be put out of the synagogue. This, mean, this meant that they would lose every privilege that, had, that they had as citizens of Israel. They would be excluded from using the temple as a place of worship. They would be excluded from society in which they moved. They would lose the privileges of employment in the nation. They would be deprived of schools that they could send their children to. By being put out of the synagogue, they would be, in effect, be reduced to poverty. They would lose everything for the sake of Christ. They don't expect that. They expect to gain everything. They're going to be princes in the kingdom of God on earth. And then Jesus is saying, wait a second, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your friends. You're going to lose your support system. You're going to lose your privilege of worshiping in the temple. You're going to lose what it means to be a Jew. They will be kicked out for believing in Jesus Christ. Where they expect exaltation, instead they will be exiled. Being a Jew is belonging to a synagogue. It is the very core of your identity as an Israeli in this time period. 
But this, I'm going to hop off the main trail real quick, off the path in the, in the woods of the scripture, and I'm just going to talk about kind of a, a related side note to you all. When the core, just listen, when I looked at verse 2 and just the, the magnitude of them losing the privileges of the synagogue, it reminded me of this, that, that this reveals an issue, that when the core of who you are, just listen, when the core of who you are is in anything else besides what God promises you, then you will be vulnerable to the pressures and the persecution of the world. The core of your identity, who you really think you are, how you find value, how you find security and purpose and belonging, if that is in anything else other than the truth of God's word, that will, you will be very vulnerable to the temptations and the crosshairs of the enemy in the world. This is why it is so important to understand who you are in Christ because Jesus Christ promises us that you will be crucified. If your identity is in a synagogue, if your identity is in a job, if your identity is in your status in the world, if your identity is in your family or your wife in the moment that it is taken away, guess what? Your whole life falls apart. Just like these Jews. Jesus is trying to realize, make them wake up and realize that the, the core of their value is the synagogue, but it should be. Jesus Christ and the redemption that we have in him. That we are lights in the world, but not lights of the world. That we are transformed, that we are born again, that we are new creations, that we are children of God. As I said in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, that we have a status with God that will never change. That we are heirs of Christ. When you have anything else as the core of your value and your identity, like a synagogue or like a church or like your family, the moment that it is taken away, you will struggle not to stumble. It's just the way we are worked, the way we are wired. They will be cast out of the synagogue. They will lose their jobs. They will lose their church. They will lose their friends. They will lose their relationships. They will lose their family. They will lose the schools. But it gets worse. Can it get worse? It does. Notice verse 2 again. Notice the second half of that. Verse 16, chapter, chapter 16, verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming. It is coming. Mood of certainty, indicative mood, it's going to happen. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. What did Jesus say to them? That they will be outcasts of the synagogue, and number two, that they will be killed. And then notice, those who kill them will think that they're offering a service to God. Who does that remind you of? Then in about six months, we were introduced to a man named Saul, who becomes Paul, who thinks that he is a servant of the Most High by killing the servant Stephen. But what do you notice, what do you know about the disciples and the persecution that they face? Because knowing what to expect keeps them from stumbling. They, for the first time, I think, realize in the upper room what they really signed up for. I mean, Jesus has told them from the beginning, right, to deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. But for the first time, they really see that, wait a second, I'm not getting a, a throne on the kingdom of God on earth. I'm going to suffer persecution. And Jesus tells them this. Why? To keep them from stumbling, verse 1. And think about the disciples. The disciples are cast out of the synagogues in the book of Acts. Yet they don't bat an eye. Why? Because Jesus told them what to expect. They're persecuted. They're exiled to the island of Patmos. Yet they don't bat an eye. Why? Because Jesus told them what to expect. They're persecuted, crucified up down, upside down like Peter. Yet Peter does not bat an eye. Why? Because Jesus told them what to expect. 
They are imprisoned, they are mocked, they are whipped, they are beaten, they are persecuted, and they are martyred for their faith, yet they stand firm. Why? Because Jesus told them they would be. Let me be honest with you. Um, you if you really live a life that is godly, and if you li- really live a life that stands out from the world, you will be misunderstood. Amen? You will be looked down upon. You will be persecuted. You will be mocked. You may even lose some relationships in your family. I imagine. I even had a lady in, in the hall last week talk about how she has really, since she's become a Christian, has lost some relationships with her family. It's part of it. You will be misunderstood, marginalized. You may be misunderstood by your unbelieving family. You may be made fun of by your classmates classmates. You may be mocked by those closest to you. You may be excommunicated by your parents, as Steve Herzig, the missions conference pastor, was. You may be passed over at work, and if you are living lights in the darkness, you will be misunderstood, but do not lose faith. Do not stumble. The question we are answering today, and the question that I see Jesus is answering in John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, is this, that when they are persecuted, what should they do? Verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember. Notice that word, remember, circle it. You remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. That the moment they receive persecution, the moment that they're kicked out of the synagogue, the moment they lose their jobs and their livelihood and the schools that their children go to. By the way, Peter was married. He probably had children. He knew what Jesus was saying in verse 2. What should they do? They should remember. Notice that. Remember that Jesus told them. Why? Because knowing what to expect keeps them from stumbling. Knowing what to expect makes all the difference in the world. They should remember that Jesus told them that they would be persecuted, misunderstood, marginalized, and mocked. When you are persecuted, remember what we know to be true so that we will not lose faith. This is my point today. What do we do when we are persecuted? The answer is this. When persecuted, remember truth so that you will not lose faith. Remember truth so you will not lose faith. For the rest of my time today, I'm just going to answer two questions. Because there seems to be, as I was just unpacking this passage this week, and I was, I was just wrestling with the text in John 16, verses 1 through 4, really kind of two questions kind of came to my mind. And, and question number one is this, you know, what truth should we remember? That when we are marginalized by a family, when we are mocked by our coworkers, when we are passed over at work for being a Christian, for being lights in the darkness, then what should we remember? Let's just answer the question for the disciples. What should they remember? Because that's what I think is applicable to us. What should they remember when they're kicked out of the synagogues in the book of Acts? Well, number one, obviously from the text itself, they should remember that Jesus told them so. Okay, I told you so. Okay, My daughter's five years old. She's going to start saying that kind of stuff here soon. I told you so. They're going to start thinking they should remember that Jesus told them they would be persecuted. John chapter 15. If they persecuted Jesus, they would persecute them. Remember, number one, that they would be persecuted. Number two, remember that they have the Spirit of God. I'm not sure I fully understand John chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. Just listen as I read it again. 
When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also in the midst of persecution, because you have been with me from the beginning. They should remember that Jesus told them that was coming, number two, that they have the Spirit of truth, that will guide them to all truth, teach them all truth, and help them remember all truth. That's a, a truth of the Spirit of God. He is our Helper that we see in the upper room. But then number three, what else should they remember? You know, um... When you are misunderstood for your faith, there are a lot of things you should remember, okay? Uh, you could think about Romans chapter 8, that your status with God can never change. All things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. I say verses I memorize way too fast, I apologize. Um, we should remember how the story ends. Revelation chapter 21, in the end. But the disciples don't know that yet. They don't have the book of Romans to look at. But they do have... The truth that Jesus has revealed in the upper room. When they are persecuted in the synagogues, they should remember that Jesus told them, number two, that they have the Spirit of God as their paraclete, as their helper, and then they should, number three, remember this. And I'm just going to unload on you, so watch out. In persecution for your faith, remember that your Savior is love. Remember, your Savior is with the Father. Remember that your Savior will return. In times of conflict with the world for your faith, remember that your Savior is preparing you a place. So if the worst thing that happens is that they put you to death, the very next breath that you will experience is eternal paradise with your Savior. John chapter 14. Your Savior is the truth in a sea of falsehoods. John chapter 14, verse 6, in the midst of persecution. Remember your Savior sent the Spirit to teach, to guide, and to help us remember all truth. In persecution, in times of being misunderstood for your faith, remember that you are designed for a purpose. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. That you are designed for a purpose, that you aren't a mistake. You are meant to bear fruit. Remember that you are designed to know God, to abide in Him, and Him to abide in you. Remember that you are designed, in a sense, to build a new synagogue of brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember that you are set aside as lights in the world, purpose to be misunderstood and persecuted. When you're persecuted, not it, but when you're persecuted, remember what Jesus has taught us. And let me just say this. I was talking with a friend of mine um, at Just Love Coffee earlier this week. And he was just talking about his personal life. We were just chit-chatting. And I'm, I'm not going to hear out. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, what's he going to say now? Personal life. Okay. Um. I am a really a locked box, believe it or not. Um, but he just got, we were just talking about persecution because last week we was talking about persecution. And he said, you know, so many Christians, when they're persecuted, they kind of misunderstand, misunderstand it as persecution. But then when they're persecuted, they play the victim card and not the victor card. Can I just say, when Christians are persecuted, they play the victim card. Oh, woe is me, instead of the victor card. The Spirit of God, through the work of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father, has placed you in a particular circumstance, whether suffering or whether persecution, for you to, in that moment, to be victor in Christ Jesus and to testify of the truth through the power of the Spirit. Let me say that all again. The Spirit of God, through the work of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father, has placed you in a circumstance of suffering and persecution so that you may be victor and you may testify to the truth. In other words, this. If you are experiencing trials, 
If you're experiencing persecution or you are being misunderstood, God purposely put you there. He put you there. For what? To testify, to be his martyr, matero, to be his witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have the spirit of God living inside you to give you power and recollection to communicate the truth of the gospel even in tough times. God put you there. So when you suffer, not if you suffer, but when you suffer, when you are misunderstood, don't play the victim card. Play the victor card. God put you there. So testify to the truth that you know. So question number one is what should we remember? And it's a big laundry list, and I can give you my sermon notes by email afterwards if you email me. But the question number two is this. Will we actually be persecuted because we live in a bubble okay we live in a bubble even within a bubble we live in the bible belt of america and we have freedom okay so experiencing being cast out of synagogues be persecuted of faith it is much more real if you live in the middle east than if you live in huntsville alabama can i get an amen there and praise the lord for it okay that is the grace of god upon our nation okay but if you think you're immune to this passage, persecution is real. As I said last week, one in eight Christians today is persecuted for their faith. 340 million Christians were persecuted in 2020, and at least 5,000 were martyred for their faith. And I shared a story last week of a missionary that came here to Calvary Bible Church of how he had a group of 100 missionaries in the Middle East in 2004, and then eight years later in 2012, it went down to 20. He lost 80, I did the math right, he lost 80 missionaries in a span of eight years due to radical Islamists coming in those front doors of these missionaries and Christians and killing them dead for their faith. Friends, listen, we do live in a bubble here, but that is a revelation of the grace of God. The fact that we are not persecuted more is a revelation of the grace of God. But as I live, and as I get a little older, and I know I'm not that old yet, um, <laughs> as, I get, as I've experienced this, quote, I, you know, I'll be honest, man, within my, within my lifetime, I think things will probably change. That if you're a Bible, true light in the world, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, that by the time I am old, I will probably be persecuted for my faith by this culture at large. That if you really stand firm for Christ and you live different, if you actually want to live according to the truth of the Bible, you will be persecuted, even in America and even in the Bible Belt. It will happen, and it probably has happened in your life. This is a reality. But if you don't believe me that your life can change very quickly because you live in a bubble, then I want you to heed the story of a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Probably some of you have heard of him before. He's a very famous theologian in the early, early 20th century. I imagine Diedrich Bonhoeffer didn't expect persecution for his faith either. He grew up in a Christian nation in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. He became a professor of New Testament there, a very prominent author. And then he wrote a book. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And like I said, if Chuck Swindoll can read books in his sermons, so can I. Okay. Um, 
If you do not have this book, it's called The Cost of Discipleship by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know what everything he believes in. I've never read the whole book. I bought this book for one stinking paragraph, okay? And it's the paragraph I'm going to read to you. This is a book you should buy just for this one paragraph to tell you what the Christian life should be. Listen, just listen to this. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which with the, the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which, which must be sought again and again. Notice that. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life he can ever have. And it is costly because it might cost you your life. If you do not believe that persecution exists, it will happen in your life. And when persecution comes, what I would encourage you to do is remember truth so that you will not lose faith. If you do not know... Jesus Christ, if this is kind of weird to you and foreign and all this suffering stuff and you expected a really peachy and rosy sermon, I'm sorry. Um, but if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he died on the cross for you to pay for your sin. And if you don't know why you need Jesus, then just think about all of your imperfections. Okay, <laughs> Think about your sin, that God is perfect and we are wildly imperfect. We make mistakes and because we make mistakes, it separates us from the presence of a perfect God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he offers you the gift of salvation, of eternal life by faith in him. If you have never surrendered to him as Lord of your life, then today is an opportunity to do so. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Believe if you have never had and surrender. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Um, It's not really a peachy sermon that I gave today, but it's just reality. You know? Uh, It's reality for the world we live in. And Lord, I pray that if we are not persecuted for our faith, if we have not experienced that, then we would have a reality check to see if we really are living as lights in the world. Because if we blend in just like everyone else, they will not see the difference we are. Lord, I just pray that when we are misunderstood by our family, by our friends, and by our coworkers, that we would be bold, that we would testify, Matero, that we would be your witnesses, be your martyrs, testifying of your grace and your gospel through our life, love, and lingo. And Lord, I just pray that we would remember the truth, that you have given us your spirit, that you're preparing us a place, give us encouragement, give us strength in those times. Lord, I thank you for my church. Uh, I I thank you that I can get up here with freedom to preach the word without feeling like I have to have a snazzy presentation or a great 
uh, energetic, you know, throwing things at people-ness. Um, I just thank you that my, my family, my church, thank you for all those tuning in the line. I know many are there that are suffering and are sick. Thank you for, and I just pray for those that have passed away recently. I just pray for special love and comfort for their families. I thank you for my church and the love that you show us and the love they show to one another. I lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.